Today we are continuing in our series entitled Prepared to Give an Answer. Our key verse for this series has been 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. If you don't have it memorized yet, I hope you do shortly. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Today's question that we are going to look at is one that you may have heard uh, before. One that you've perhaps been given as a reason to why someone didn't want to come to church. And the question is this. Why are there hypocrites in church? Another common variation of this question is Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, so why would I become one? Have you ever been asked a question like this before or heard this said by someone before? Chances are you have. So we're going to look at that this morning. So before we do, would you bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is alive and active. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us understanding. And so we pray that by your Spirit you would give us understanding to your word We pray that you would speak through it to each one of our hearts, Lord, that this morning we could understand this question and that we could be better prepared and equipped to give an answer to those who would ask us or to give their reasons for why they would not consider putting faith in you. And so we pray that as we look at this area, you would shine the light not only on uh, this subject, but on our own hearts to show us, Lord, the way that we should go in response to this. So speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've probably heard a version of this story before, and if you haven't, I'll share it with you now. There's a story told of a forest ranger who is making his rounds in a remote part of a wooded reserve. When he comes across an unkept man sitting at a makeshift campfire, and to the ranger's astonishment, this man sitting at the campfire is roasting and eating a bald eagle. Now, this was a big no-no, of course, so the man was immediately arrested by the forest ranger and brought to trial for his crime. The judge asked the man, Do you know that killing and eating a bald eagle is a federal offense? Yes, I do, Your Honor, replied the man, but if you will let me argue my case, I'll explain to you what happened. You see, I got lost in the woods and I hadn't eaten for two weeks. Then, lo and behold, a bald eagle landed upon a nearby tree stump with a fish in his talons. So meaning to simply scare the eagle away, I threw a stone towards him, hoping he would drop the fish, which I could then eat. Unfortunately, my aim was off, and by sheer accident, the rock hit the eagle squarely in the head, killing it. I then figured, well, I might as well eat it, since it would be more disgraceful to let this eagle go to waste while I'm starving. Well, upon hearing the man's testimony, the judge deliberated and then pronounced his verdict. Due to the extreme circumstances you were under, and because you didn't intend to kill the eagle, the court will dismiss the charge. You are free to go. Well, the man breathed a deep sigh of relief. But then as he got up to leave the witness stand, the judge leaned over and whispered, If you don't mind me asking, what does a bald eagle taste like? Well, Your Honor, I guess the best comparison I can make is it's a bit more tender than a peregrine falcon, lacks the tang of a spotted owl, but I far prefer it to the blue heron. (laughs) Now, we've all played the hypocrite in some way, shape, or form before. 
Now, hopefully it involved matters more trivial than eating endangered and protected species of birds. But nonetheless, this story highlights that we're all capable of hypocrisy. The definition of hypocrisy is this. It comes from the Greek for play-acting. They used, in the the Greek times, they would actually use masks for the actors on the stage. And so the term hypocrite defines someone who acted playing a character they were not, and often by wearing a mask. And so the definition is simply, it is someone who pretends to be what he is not. Scholar D. Collins gives this definition. A hypocrite is a person who attempts to live two lives simultaneously. The public persona is an act or pretense. The real persona is lived out in private. In many cases, though, such people are often caught out when they are seen in private behaving contrary to their public persona, or when the true persona peeks out in public. And so when people are asking the question, why are there hypocrites in church, there's a, there's a, a few answers that we can give. And the first answer, and the first part of the answer I would like to propose for you this morning is this. Everyone has been a hypocrite at something at some time. Take, for example, how we typically clean up our houses before a company comes over. Has anyone ever done this before, or are we the only ones? (laughs) You know, we frantically clean and tidy up. We shove cleaning supplies into the closet. We throw everything else into the bedroom and close the door so that no one will see it. And all of this as if to present the illusion that our house is always this clean. But of course, anyone who has ever had a two and a five-year-old boy running amok most days of the week, you know this is impossible. Of course, if you were to drop by unannounced at someone's house, you will see the difference. So be it ever so small, we've all played the hypocrite at one time or another at something. Zig Ziglar said that he once invited a friend to church. To which the man had replied, well, I'd like to go to church, but the church is just so full of hypocrites. To which Ziegler had replied, that's okay, there's always room for one more. (laughs) You see, even to say, I'm not going to church because there are hypocrites there, is a hypocritical statement. It actually is when you evaluate it. Because by saying you're not going to go somewhere because hypocrites are there you are implying that A, you are never hypocritical yourself, and that B, you will not go anywhere that there are hypocrites. And yet, do you ever hear people say, I'm not going to shop at co-op because there are too many hypocrites there? (laughs) You don't hear statements like that. I'm not going to the hockey arena because there's hypocrites there. No, you don't hear people say things like that. And yet, for some reason with church, we hear people say things like that. I'm not going there because there are hypocrites there. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, we discover that even the mighty rock, Peter the Apostle, the leader of the early church, even he, filled by the Spirit, you got to remember, this is post-Pentecost. This is Peter the Apostle, filled with the Spirit, even he was capable of, of hypocrisy. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me this morning. Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. We, we read it earlier, but let's refresh our memories. Beginning in verse 11, and this is the Apostle Paul writing. When Peter came to Antioch, and just a footnote there, Antioch was 
the, we'll call it the sending church of the day. Antioch was where they were first called Christians. It was the base church outside of Jerusalem, which was the, the springboard for all of the evangelism and the missions that Paul went on was all based out of Antioch. So it's sort of one of the, the flagship churches of the early, uh, the early apostles. And so when Peter came to Antioch, Paul writes, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. And not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, there are a few details of this story that we need to understand in order to get the full scope. The entire issue that Paul is confronting Peter about has to do with what Peter is eating and who Peter is eating with. It was a food problem and a fellowship problem. Pastor David Dykes gives the following explanation of the controversy. He writes, Let's imagine that when Peter arrived in Antioch and the church served a welcome meal for him, the menu was barbecue, and the church cook served beef brisket for those Jewish Christians who still preferred the Jewish dietary rules, but they also served pork barbecue for the Gentile Christians. And so when Peter went through the serving line first, everybody was watching What would he take? And he proceeded to load down his plate with both beef brisket and pork barbecue. Then he sat down, and he sat down and ate not just with the Jews, but at a table with Gentile Christians. Everyone sighed with relief. They rejoiced to know that the gospel of grace had eliminated all the tedious rules and regulations of the Old Testament law. Everything was fine, until some other Jewish VIPs came from the Jerusalem church. When they arrived, Peter suddenly changed his behavior. Instead of making a point of eating the pork barbecue and sitting with Gentiles, he's now worried about keeping up appearances with the other Jewish VIPs. And so now, he's only eating beef brisket again, and only sitting with other Jews, according to the Jewish customs. And quickly, others noticed, and they began to follow Peter's lead, even Barnabas. So now, to those of us who still don't fully understand what's going on here, you need to understand how important the Jewish dietary customs were of that day, and in fact still are to this very day. In fact, there are many McDonald's in Israel today, believe it or not, You can go visit ancient historical biblical sites and up on a hill somewhere you'll find a McDonald's. They're kind of a clash of two worlds. And yet one of the things, even though McDonald's is very familiar, you cannot order a cheeseburger at a McDonald's in Israel. And the reason is because, according to the Mosaic Law, you cannot eat meat and cheese together. 
And so, therefore, you cannot order a cheeseburger. And believe me, I know because I tried. You cannot get a cheeseburger. And they will not go to the back and make you one. Even though they might have cheese on the premises somewhere, you cannot order a cheeseburger. It is a big deal. Serious stuff. And so, when Peter showed all of the the Christians that following these customs and rules was no longer necessary, it was a very big deal. And so for him to slide back into going according to the Jewish customs was to undermine the entire message of the gospel that he had been preaching. You must remember that it was to Peter who the vision was given of all of the unclean animals descending from, from the sky, the voice saying, Arise, take, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean, Lord. I cannot do this. And the reply is, that which God makes clean is not unclean. Take, kill, and eat. And so Peter arises, he takes the unclean animals, the ceremonially unclean animals, and he eats these animals. And this is now the breaking of the the Old Testament covenant that it's no longer valid. We are now under the new covenant of grace. And so Peter knew full well what he was doing when he decided to slide back into the old Jewish customs, he knew better. And this was what his hypocrisy was all about. So now by highlighting the fact that even Peter was capable of hypocrisy, this is not to condone hypocrisy. It is simply to help all of us recognize that no one, not even Peter, the leader of the church, is immune to it, be it ever so subtle. And the first step to breaking hypocrisy is to admit it. Admit that we are all capable of it. Robert Redford, the famous actor, was once walking through a hotel lobby. And a young woman saw him and followed him to the elevator. And with bated breath, she asked, Are you the real Robert Redford? And as the doors of the elevator closed, he had replied quickly, Only when I'm alone. Are you the real Robert Redford? You see... We're all capable of it, and he recognized that within himself. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly how Peter responded to this correction. Paul makes it very clear that he did it in front of everyone so that everyone could hear the rebuke. It wasn't done just in private. So this might not have gone over so well, but we know from piecing it together from Peter's own letters and also from the the letters of the Acts of the Apostles, we know that Peter did receive this rebuke, and he repented of his his hypocrisy, and we must do the same. And so in recognizing that we are all capable of it, and when people say, well, there's too many hypocrites in church, we just need to point out the fact, like Zig Ziglar did, there's room for one more. We're all capable of it, and the church is no exception. The second part of the answer is this. Grace trumps the law. Now, though it was ever so subtle... Paul could clearly see that Peter's actions were actually undermining the very gospel of grace that Peter himself was teaching. In verse 16, Paul shared what he said to Peter. He writes this, We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, to the outside world, the fact that Peter, the leader of the church, was caught in a hypocritical action, it would validate their position that the church is full of hypocrites and that therefore they have no need to become a Christian because 
we're all on the same level. Well, the, the Christians are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. We're all on the same level. I have no need to become one. But this thinking comes from an incorrect view and misunderstanding of what the church is and how salvation is received. For you see, the church is not full of perfect people. The church is full of forgiven people. There's a big difference. The church is not this museum for saints. No, it is forgiven sinners. And yes, once we are forgiven in Christ, we are called saints. But there is a difference between saying that this is now a collection of perfect people. So yes, if we were all saying that we're all perfect from this day forward and we will never sin again, then yes, they would be valid in saying that because the church is full of hypocrites, therefore I I have no need to become one. But that's not how salvation works. You see, a Christian is not justified in the eyes of God by their good actions. They are justified in the eyes of God by placing their faith in the actions of one man. And that one man is the Lord Jesus. And in doing this, they receive his free gift of grace. To add anything else on top of that, even something as small as what you eat and who you sit with when you eat it, is to present the false illusion that something more than Jesus' cleansing blood is necessary for salvation. You see, Peter, I don't even believe he fully understood or realized the ramifications of what he was doing or the unspoken message that he was sending. I believe that unwittingly, he was presenting the idea that something more than faith in Jesus Christ was required to be a Christian. And Paul recognized this. And we can do the exact same thing, just in different ways. Could it be, and I've been pondering this question this week, could it be that one of the main reasons that that the non-believing world thinks that going to church and being a good person is what earns salvation. Could it be the reason they believe that is because that is the unspoken message that we are sending them? I've been puzzling about this. Are we unwittingly giving off the message or sending out the signals that it's by our good behavior and going to church that we are Christians and that we are saved? Now, of course, we know that's not the truth, but I'm just wondering... Is there some message that we, like Peter, are unwittingly sending to the world? And if so, how do we correct it? I was thinking about this. And I think that whenever we seek to impose our Christian morality, our dress codes, our rules upon non-believing people, I believe they are receiving the message that they need to clean up their own lives in order to be good enough for God. And yet the whole message of the gospel of grace is that it is impossible for us to clean up our own lives and that we need Jesus to do absolutely everything. And so to add anything on top of that, even something as simple as what Peter was doing, saying, I'm just going to do the Jewish dietary laws, I'm going to sit with other Jews, as is the old old covenant uh, customs... He was sending the signal that this was required in addition to grace. And I think that if we apply dress codes, if we apply Christian morality to those who have not yet received grace, the grace of God through salvation in Jesus Christ alone, we are unwittingly sending the message that these things are required in addition. And Peter fell into this trap, and we need to guard against it as well. 
We must remember that Jesus reserved his harshest words not for thieves or prostitutes. He reserved them for the ultra-religious Pharisees who he identified repeatedly as hypocrites. And Jesus was committed to exposing those people who claimed to represent God and his ways but were actually misrepresenting it and doing more harm than good. For the Pharisees, Jesus exposed them for rather than drawing people closer to God, they were actually putting a stumbling block between people and God. They were leading them further away. So while, yes, of course, we as Christians, those who are in the church, we are called to live good lives that are pleasing to God. We are called to hold one another as Christians accountable to this new life. But we do all of this in a grateful response to receiving God's free gift of salvation through grace alone. And so we need to make it ever so careful. We need to be ever so cautious to make clear to the outside world that it is not the rules or rituals of religion that justify us in the eyes of God. It is only by exercising faith and entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we are saved. That's it. There is nothing else, not one speck, not one drop, not one iota of law that needs to be added to what Jesus has done for our salvation. He has done it all. Period. That's it. And in verse 20 and 21, Paul hammers this point home. In this famous passage that we've all heard before, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. To add one speck of law, to add one speck of it, In order to receive salvation, Paul is making it so clear that is to set aside the grace of God and make Christ's death meaningless, in vain. And so when we are conversing with non-believing, non-church people, or even when we invite them to church, we need to guard against sending the message or giving the impression that going to church will save them. It is not the church who will save them. It is Jesus who will save them. And of course, we know that by inviting someone to church, we hope that they will encounter Jesus here. But we need to make sure that that is the message we are sending. It is not my relationship to the church that is making me right in the eyes of God. No, it is my relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what will save them. And we need to make that clear when we converse with those who are outside of the faith. At Turtle Mountain Bible Camp uh, a couple of weeks back, I had... One of the privileges that week was getting to know, uh, I believe, the oldest male counselor on staff. His name was Eric, and Eric was over 50 years old, and yet he was still counseling a cabin full of teenage boys, and he did a great job of it. And Eric was a, a firefighter in Winnipeg, and he had given up a couple of weeks of his summer to come and work at Bible camp, and he was a wonderful, a spirit-led man who loves Jesus and loves talking about him. And at the end of the week, he gave me a card that said on the front, Meet my friend. And on the inside of the card, it said, His name is Jesus. You see, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. We must remember that. It's not about religion. It's about relationship to Jesus Christ. 
And even we as Christians who know that that's the case, we so often can get, like Peter, ever so subtly caught up in the, the, uh, pardon me, the ritualistic aspects or the habitual aspects of our religion and forget about the relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can come to church and we can do all of the right things on the outside, but on the inside, are we connecting with Jesus in a relationship in a day-to-day way? Are we conversing with him? Is he real to us? And we need to make sure about that for ourselves because that is what we want to draw other people into as well. I'm not so concerned about, about drawing people into the religion, or pardon me, the habitual aspects of coming to church. I'm interested into drawing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this might sound a little odd coming from the pastor of this church, but I'm going to say it anyways just to make the point. I am not overly concerned about adding new members to the Clarny Mennonite Church. Now, hear me out, but I'm I'm making my point here. I am not overly concerned about it. Why? Because what I am concerned about is introducing people to Jesus and adding new members to God's family. And now, of course, should they choose to worship here, Should they choose to be discipled here and serve God here? Absolutely, by all means, we will welcome them in. But our goal, our goal is not to see how many people we can get into the pews. That's not the end aim of what we're doing here. Our goal, our end aim, our purpose of this church, and for any church for that matter, should be to connect people to Jesus Christ in a real and personal way. And so let me ask you today, do you know Jesus in a real and personal way? There's a well-known story of a young couple. And they boasted to all of their friends and neighbors that they were flying to New York City. And they were only going to be able to spend one day there. But the highlight of their trip was going to be to go to the Broadway play, My Fair Lady. And they were ever so proud of this fact, and everyone was quite impressed because no one else in that small town had ever been to New York City, let alone to see a Broadway play. And so the day came, and when they arrived in New York, they took a taxi to the theater where My Fair Lady was playing. To their dismay, they found that the play was already sold out for the night. They couldn't get a ticket. So they thought, well, what do we do now? Everybody knows that we came to see the play My Fair Lady. We told the entire town. We don't dare go back and tell them that we didn't do it after all of this. So they found a couple of ticket stubs on the sidewalk and they picked them up. They bought a program that described the various acts of the play. They went home singing the lead song of the play, I Could Have Danced All Night. And they told everybody that they had gone to see the play My Fair Lady And no one was the wiser. For you see, they had the ticket stubs. They had the program. They had even been to the theater. They even knew the music. But the trouble is, they missed the show. And a lot of people who attend church are just like that. They come to church. They have the bulletin. They know the songs. They know what to say and what to do. They know when to stand and when to sit. The problem is that many have missed the show. They have never entered into a personal and daily relationship with Jesus Christ. They have never surrendered full control of their life to him. 
And if the Holy Spirit is nudging at your heart right now and saying, that's you, listen to him. He loves you. He is, he is calling you. He wants you to enter into that relationship. If he's nudging at your heart, allow his free gift of grace to trump the rules that you thought were good enough. Only Jesus is good enough to make us right before God. As Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the wonderful thing is that now when Christ is in me, when he looks at Danny Greening and when he looks at you, if you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, he no longer sees your hypocrisy, your guilt, or your sin. He sees Jesus. And so now you are justified in the eyes of God. You are right with the Father, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so he looks at us and he sees Jesus. We are covered by his grace. And that is enough. And that is all. And so may we live this out in a real way. And may we show the world that it is not our religion that saves us. It is not coming to church that saves us or going through these motions. No, it is what has happened on the out, or pardon me, on the inside. It is what's happened in our hearts, our relationship with Jesus Christ. He has saved us. And so now what we do on the outside is an overflow in response to what he has done on the inside. Let's pray together. Father God, this is one of those subjects that, even for myself this week in preparation, it touches on a nerve. Because Lord, we know, each one of us, that there are times where we play the hypocrite, where we know we've done something that is against, against your ways, against your will. And so Father, for this, just as when Peter was confronted, Lord, if you've by your Spirit confronted any one of us in an area of hypocrisy in our lives, Father, show it to us and then give us the strength to repent of it, just as Peter did. To say we're sorry and to turn away from that and towards you. And so, Father, even as we do so, we also pray that each one of us would recognize and realize in this moment that it's not about going through the outward actions that make us right with you. It's, it's all about a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, in a personal way, what you've done in our hearts by cleansing us with your, your grace by your shed blood on the cross. And nothing that we've done can add to that. Nothing that we will ever do can add to that. Not one speck of it. And so we thank you that it's a free gift that we can freely receive and enter into this personal relationship with you. And so Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who just feels you nudging, saying, that's you, enter into this relationship, I pray that you would, by your grace, just take them by the hand and lead them to your heart. I pray, Father, that we as a church would be good witnesses in this community of showing this town your heart, that it's about a relationship with you and nothing less. Help us to live this out in an authentic way in our families, in our work relationships, in everyone that we say, everything that we say and everyone we meet, that they would know it's you and you make all the difference. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we ask this. Amen.